session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and spot, podcast, <laughs> podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, let's get to the books of the week. Also, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. It's February 14th. I know sometimes people listen to these shows later, but if you're listening live, happy Valentine's Day to you. Let's get to the books of the week, the book of the week for uh, this week. And kind of the, the title now sounds funny to me, The Power of Regret, because it's Valentine's Day. So if you're listening to me live, you might be experiencing some regret. But The Power of Regret by Daniel H. Pink, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. So obviously I haven't read the book, but I... I've always been someone who thought that when people say don't have any regrets or they show off about having no regrets, I found that a little bit puzzling and I didn't quite agree with it. I'm looking forward to what he has to say in this book about the power of regret, how actually it could be beneficial. I think sometimes people think about regret um, in a way of saying, I want to say I did nothing wrong or everything I did had to have been right. For example, it made me who I am, which I can see some value in that, but I also think it would be Silly to think that if you look back in your life, you wouldn't do anything differently, particularly things that might have hurt yourself or other people, and that's itself complicated. So we'll, I'll save that um, conversation for next week. Uh, the book of the week for this week, that uh, last week I'll talk about tonight, is How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And so that's a easy transition there when we're talking about regret and things that um, the country regrets, of course, slavery being the most significant one. And when I read these books each week, uh, it's enjoyable in the sense that I feel that I'm learning something, I'm diving into some kind of either world or the author's mind or ideas. And in this case, though, it was interesting, but also heartbreaking. So in this book, Clint Smith, who uh, is also a poet, and you feel that in the, the the words that he chooses in this book, it's very artistic and poetic, but also hits very hard. He visits um, nine places, eight in the United States, and then one in, in Senegal, so in, in, uh, where sl slaves came from Africa to the United States uh, or the Americas. And so he goes to these different places that have some kind of connection with slavery and looking at the history of slavery and how it's related to this place, including places like Monticello or Monticello, I don't know if it's cello or cello, where it's Thomas Jefferson's home, but also plantation. So he was the third president, was monumental in drafting the Declaration of Independence and is considered one of the forefathers of this country. But he also owned many slaves and also had children with one of his slaves, and this itself was controversial, uh, Sally Hemings. And so that part was discussed in the book. But so each chapter is Clint Smith visiting a location and looking at the history of that place, usually visiting with people that are either, uh, some of them are historic places where there's tour guides and people he can meet or exploring about the history and how it's relevant, first of what happened and how we can trace that to the present day, uh, because oftentimes 
we think of slavery as something that was so far removed from now. It happened so long ago. Uh, but there is a powerful uh, introductory sentence to the epilogue of the book. So after he visits these places, he starts that chapter, and I want to make sure I read it to you, um, which is this. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. So that's my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. This is Clint Smith um, speaking about himself. And so when we hear it that way, and as he explores it that way, we see that it's not so long ago. It's just a few generations ago. And not only that, of course, racism still exists strongly in the United States, uh, and people have experienced that are still living some pretty incredibly painful things, like he talks about his grandmother and grandfather, uh, one from each side of his, his family, and what they experienced growing up. And he goes and visits the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. with them, and then has conversations with them, talking about the experiences that they have. And so we often try to avoid thinking about negative things in general. Partially, it's a human or biological um, natural reaction. When something is doesn't feel pleasant, we want to go away from it. And so we all do this in our daily lives and, and our lives in general, avoiding things that would be important for us to face, but that make us not feel good. But also collectively, we at times will avoid facing aspects of our history, of course, of our present too, but also of our history that might not feel good to think about or we'd rather distance ourselves from. But without understanding our history, we can't understand how we got to where we were so or where we are. It's not just that we learn from our mistakes. That's absolutely true and important to study history for that reason. But it's also important to study history to understand how we have arrived at our present-day situation. Because when we don't do that, it often just seems like things are the natural result of things or some type of natural order. But if we recognize and realize and trace the line of history all the way back, we see that things could have been very different, or at least that things are the way they are very much because of the history of, of whatever has happened, whether we're talking about a country, the whole world, uh, whatever it might be. And so, as I mentioned in each chapter, he goes through a different city or a different uh, location, and that's somehow relevant to slavery. And so starting with Monticello um, and Thomas Jefferson, it's an interesting uh, figure. He is an interesting figure because... As most people are, it's, his history is complex. He was very uh, one of the founding fathers, and he was very important when it came to the creation of the United States and even the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal. Even that men part would not include everybody. But also we know that all men did not mean all even men. It meant all white men. And so, yes, he's a product of that past and that time period, but we cannot deny what he also did, the positive and the negative. And so as he goes on this tour, actually, of Monticello, his tour guide, David, uh, does a really good job of actually presenting more of a full picture of Thomas Jefferson, not just the positive, but also that we can't talk about him without also talking about slavery and recognizing that. Um, then he visits a, a plantation, the Whitney Plantation, which doesn't has done a good job of preserving or... I should say, uh, creating an experience where you can see what it could have been like. Of course, we'll never know what it's like, but to have been um, a slave, to make it feel more 
real because I think, of course, we can never know what it's like to experience something like slavery, but we want to try to be closer to it, to understand it in a better way or to feel closer um, to that. And so uh, there are other plantations that don't do this or that might exist or that hold weddings, for example, but uh, the Whitney Plantation is one where you actually can see more of the history and understand what it was like or understand the um, type of experience that might have been there. And it's really heartbreaking, as I said, and it's something that you sometimes have to slow down. Even that word slave or slavery, we've heard many times, but remembering that it meant someone owned someone else. Um, it's uh, it's painful to hear the stories of families being separated, of uh, people being sold for a certain amount of images of what it was like to be on the auction block. Imagine being somewhere and they're bidding for people. Now, things like this still happen and you'll see things around the world. So uh, it's not something just even in the history of the world, but to recognize it as happening in the United States and how it's happened uh, is quite heartbreaking because, you know, human trafficking still is a very real thing. Um, so I don't want to pretend like it's only in the past. Um, and as we speak of the, the lineage or tracing slavery and the history of it, he then also visits a prison, Angola prison, or it's called Angola prison in New Orleans. And so when we think about modern day slavery, as I mentioned, it does exist in other ways, but the American prison system definitely has remnants or can be traced to slavery in a variety of ways. One is that it's overwhelmingly populated by people of color, including black Americans. Um, also, there is still essentially slave labor that takes place. So people that are in prison, and they talk about this in the Angola prison, he talks about how um, they get paid something like, I think it was two to 20 cents an hour to do work. And it's usually physically grueling and demanding work. And that's present day, not saying like, you know, in the past and now it's worth more, two to 20 cents an hour. Uh, he talks to someone and I think he was saying he was getting seven cents an hour, seven cents an hour. I don't know if you can consider that a wage, um, but that's what they are getting paid. And so how different is that from slavery, one, one can ask. And so uh, I think it's important as we think about, again, slavery is so far in the past. First of all, it's not so long ago in many ways, but recognizing that in some ways it still exists and the consequences of it still exist. Um, and that also relates to a chapter where he goes to Galveston Island, which is in uh, Texas, or I think off, yeah, off the coast of Texas. And here there was a declaration that if you've heard of Juneteenth, so it's June 19th, 1865, a declaration was made there or stated that uh, slavery had, the Civil War had ended, and so essentially that slavery had ended. Now, um, General Robert E. Lee, who was one of the main generals of the Confederate Army, actually surrendered on April 9th, 1865 in Appomattox County, Virginia. That was where the, the battle was. And so it wasn't until June 19th, over two months later, that the news reached individuals in Texas and that many more people were, were freed. But even that, it wasn't that, okay, June 19th happened and everyone and even Texas was free. Um, this transition was a very, very long and slow one. 
Many people did not even tell their slaves. If they could, they would try to hide it from them. Even what happened afterwards, many people had to still be dependent and basically became slaves again, or were uh, sharecroppers and things that happened that made it so they essentially were still in the same position. So it's not as if when we think about these days, it is very important to recognize a day like June 19th, Juneteenth, uh, 1865, but to recognize that it doesn't mean that everything became okay then. We're still dealing with those remnants now. Uh, so, you know, in the book, as I mentioned, it's, it's very heavy seeing him go even to New York City and seeing how as much as we might think of the North as where these were the quote-unquote good guys when we think about slavery in America, but that slavery existed in New York City and that even things like uh, Central Park was an area, actually Seneca Village, where many black people lived in the 19th century and essentially were just uh, removed or forced to remove to build that park. So we can see that so much of America and different things that we even would not think are related to slavery might have some connection or do have a connection to it. So I would highly recommend this book uh, for everyone, but especially if you want to get some in-depth perspective of some of the experiences of individuals who experienced slavery, but also things related to slavery and what happened in the aftermath in the United States, a very deep historical perspective, very personal because you hear people's stories um, and sharing about either themselves or their family members and what they experienced. And a reminder, as I said, that it was not so long ago and that it was not something that it's not just in our history here in the United States, it's part of our present as well. And if we don't understand that history, there will be no way for us to understand how we got here. And we still have a lot of work to do in that regard, which I think I'm going to talk about in the in the next segment here today. So that was the book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America by Clint Smith. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was discussing the book, How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. And so in this segment, I was going to talk about a topic that is generally fairly controversial, um, which is reparations. And I definitely don't have, even though I was going to say any of the answers, definitely not all the answers and definitely any of the answers. But I wanted to share some of my thoughts on reparations. So uh, generally speaking, when you hear that term, reparations, when it is in regards to slavery, it's uh, in the United States, it's what is going to basically be done to repair what has been done to black Americans through slavery. And obviously, as a starting point, we know you cannot repay in any way or make right that type of a wrong, but it's trying to come to some type of a resolution that will allow a better way of moving forward. In general, you can't right a wrong completely. You try your best, but uh, especially in this case, we know that won't be possible to right that wrong. Now, the ending of slavery in other countries is also uh, sometimes shocking when we hear about what has been done. So uh, I learned this in Thomas Piketty's book, Capital and, and Ideology. But often when slavery ended somewhere, slave owners were actually paid essentially for their loss of property, which it sounds shocking. 
but I think it shows how much we value property too much in a capitalistic society where losing even a person that was property, the first thought is we need to pay the person who owned the person rather than um, somehow compensate the individual who has experienced such inhumane treatment. So that has happened before, and that was something even discussed in the U.S., but what happened, or some people wanted that. However, there was talk of things like 40 acres and a mule or something of paying or giving every black American some um, type of financial or way to start life and start things going that nothing ever did happen. And we know that it wasn't that slavery ended and everything was all good. No, things were still really bad and still continue to be, but even were worse before um, what black Americans had to experience after slavery was nothing um, short of inhumane. And that's why we had to have the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and still have work to do. But so if we look at this theme of, of reparations, now looking at it for myself as a psychologist and as a therapist, when I deal with people who are, let's say, families or couples who come to therapy, one of the main things that we do is we try to repair essentially another kind of reparations in a different kind of context, of course, past transgressions that have happened in that relationship. So many things are brought up. Also, let's say if you're going to couples therapy, want to improve your communication, improve certain things, so you strengthen certain things. But one of the main things we also are doing is repairing old wounds or old transgressions or things that have happened. And so essentially when we have a type of wound or transgression that's not healed, just like a wound in your body, it continues to cause pain or damage. So if you have some issue with your foot right now, actually I have something kind of long story, but my foot is not in such good shape, it's healing. So if that doesn't heal and I continue to try to walk on it or do everything I used to do, it will continue to create pain and won't let me be as strong and will lead to more injury down the line. So in a relationship, the same thing. If you don't take care of these things that have created wounds and pains, it affects the quality of the relationship. Essentially, when we think of our relationship with someone, it is like the sum total of all of your experiences with that person. And of course, if we go even deeper, it's your experiences with that person intermixed with your own past, which will affect how you feel about what you experience. But let's just focus on the sum total of your experiences with that person. And so if you've been with someone many years and had a strong relationship, if someone does something a little bit hurtful, it might have some damage, but the roots are stronger because of all those past interactions that it won't damage it so much. But if you do something so devastating, it actually could damage even a very strong relationship or a weaker relationship that's newer or has not had as much time to build that strong connection, it's more likely to be damaged or potentially fall apart from some kind of transgression. So in therapy, we want to repair these, which means sharing what happened. And oftentimes when we're talking about a couple, it's both people were involved, so both people might have been hurt by the other in some interaction. And then trying to come to some kind of resolution where there is acknowledgement of the pain that you have caused your partner, and then also trying to make it right, which can look different depending on what it is. As is essentially always the case, you can't literally make it right. If you forgot someone's birthday, 
uh, one year. You can't remember it then. You could try to keep remembering it going forward or not have that happen again. But we often and almost always can't change and make up for exactly what we have done. But you can apologize, acknowledge what happened, and also try to make it right in whatever way that you can, whatever that might be. And as is often the case, the best apology is changed behavior. So if someone apologizes for calling you a certain name and then does it again the next week and apologizes and then keeps doing it again every week or a few weeks, you start to not feel much in their apology because you don't get the sense that they're genuinely sorry and trying to make a change. So what we see is in couples and family relationships, if we don't repair these wounds, the relationship can't be as good and as healthy as it can be. And so that's often a big focus of couples therapy. And then so when I think about this and then think about reparations and the wound, even however you want to call it, won't be strong enough of a word, of slavery in the United States and what has been done uh, and was done to black Americans, how can we move forward without reconciling that wrong? So the notion that it was a long time ago and we should, you know, people should just either get over it or we have to move forward, I think misses the part that moving forward is often only possible if you repair the past and what has happened. So actually couples will do this too. It's like, okay, yeah, I know I said those horrible things about your family and, you know, in front of them and did this thing, but we have to just forget about it, move on. And even this idea of moving forward or the past in the past and moving forward, it's a good mindset to have, but often we can't move forward from the past until we've healed the past. So, okay, you hurt your leg. Yeah, yeah, but the past is the past. Just keep running. Well, maybe not. If you hurt your leg, you might have to heal that leg first. You can't just keep running because you don't want to have that downtime or to face that discomfort that will be the process of healing. So we have to heal the past if we want to move forward from the past. We can't just tell whoever is hurting to get over it because we're not hurting them anymore. Um, that doesn't work, and that's not how things will will follow. I know there's a Malcolm X quote where he says that much more powerfully and eloquently in the same vein. And so if we want to go and move forward, we have to heal the past, and that's something that in the United States we absolutely have not done. Um, the acknowledgement of slavery, yes, is definitely there. I don't think anyone denies it. That's going to be almost a very marginal or uh, members of the community of the uh, citizens of the United States. It's almost no one. But as far as how we've acknowledged it and, and gone forward, we have not done that. And yes, no one alive today was owning slaves um, back then. And so even when we think about who would apologize, to me, it's really the country some way as a whole would make some type of acknowledgement. But to me, the acknowledgement, of course, is just one step, but it would be part of a much bigger process. And maybe here I can add a little caveat. Uh, of course, I was not affected by these things, so I can't come up with what would be the resolution. It would have to be something that comes up both with, uh, let's say, the government, but especially with those who have been harmed, Black Americans, to come up with what would be what they would want, however we figure that out. And that's another thing that people use as a reason not to move forward and say, well, how are we going to figure it out? How do you make up for it? How do you put a number on it? And economists have put numbers on things like slavery and what was the economic cost. Um, but, you know, there's these reasons where we say, essentially, it's one of those things where we say, well, because we can't do it perfectly, let's not do it at all. 
which is a very easy cop-out that people use a lot. And really, if you think about it, then almost we should do nothing because you're not going to fix any issue or resolve any issue perfectly. So the, the argument would be just don't even start trying to make it right. Or we can't make things perfectly equal or fair or just, so we shouldn't even start. Um, or people will say, well, the world isn't fair, so whoever it is that's suffering in whatever the way is has to just accept it. And to me, yes, the idea that we're going to achieve perfect justice is not uh, something possible, but I do think it's something as, as an ideal that we strive towards and recognize that we always will have imperfect justice, but we want to strive towards getting as close as we can to that. We know it won't be perfect, but how close can we get to making it right? So just because it's difficult or complicated or we don't even know how to calculate it or what would be the right way or how do we get everyone to agree to what's the right path towards reparations, what would make things right? I don't think any of these are excuses for not actually following through or trying to find a way to, to study the issue to make it right. And so it would likely include a financial um, compensation too. When you look at the wealth in the United States, he had a percentage in here. I forget, and I wish I had marked it down. Um, but essentially that the percentage of wealth in the United States owned by black Americans is still such a fraction of their population. And inevitably it's tied into these history and roots of slavery and what took place afterwards. So I think there would likely be a financial aspect to it. But when we talk about changed behavior, we would have to see the injustices that exist in the United States, where black children are much more likely to receive a poorer education and to live in poverty. That's something that should be unacceptable. And so the ways that we would make things more fair and equal and just in this country are would have to involve many different facets and aspects, and it wouldn't be a one-time uh, change. So yes, there could be a one-time payment that might be part of it, but in my opinion, to move towards justice, it would be a complex and multifaceted, multi-stage type of a initiative. But as part of the reparations and as the part I was talking about acknowledging and apologizing and moving forward, just declaring this mission and not just declaring it, but taking steps towards it, I think would be very healing for this country. And I think that unfortunately, because we have not reckoned with slavery and what it has done and continues to do to this country and to black Americans, we still are paying that price collectively. And of course, black Americans playing it more directly because of their experience. And I think that's very sad. And I hope that's something that will change. So as I said, I definitely don't have the answers to what reparations will exactly look like. I do think there will be a financial component that would make sense, but also huge structural changes, which would take a long time, um, but that are necessary to reduce the inequalities that exist, the inequity that exists still in this country. But I would hope that we move towards that and recognize that moving forward is only possible as we move through our past. Moving forward is only possible if we move through in a healing way through our past, that you can't just forget about the pains and move forward. I can't break your leg and say, well, now keep running because we have a race to run and I don't want to slow down. Uh, we have to recognize that if your leg is broken and I broke it, there has to be something done to repair that, both your bone and also our relationship if I was the one that hurt you. And so we have 
all of that happening in the United States where people are still suffering and there's people that cause that suffering. And especially, I think the government can be a way of uh, representing that. That would have to somehow be involved. And going back to the connections or the parallels between relationships in general, when we don't repair those relationships, it's inevitable that those wounds will continue to cause harm, mostly to those who are the ones bleeding, the ones who have been hurt, but overall it creates harm in the relationship. And in this case, it's a societal type of relationship. So this is one of those hot button types of topics that people talk about. And uh, as I was even talking about it, I recognize that I maybe even overstated because I can't speak on behalf of another group, but did want to share some thoughts, especially in regards to the psychological aspects from my opinion about how we can only move on if we repair what's happened in the past, avoiding it and pretending like it didn't happen or pretending like it was too long ago to do something about it is not the answer. All right, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in the last segment, I wanted to talk about being woke or staying woke. Maybe you've heard that term, maybe you have not. Um, my understanding is that it originated actually a long time ago in the 1930s in uh, what's called African-American vernacular English. And so it's a term that's used to recognize that you are aware of injustices that exist. It started with racial injustices, but you'll now hear it for anything related to, let's say, sexism, any kind of prejudice that is in any way oppressing some group. So you maybe you'll hear people say, stay woke, or people will declare that they are woke. And so you hear that term a lot. And then, of course, as anything that exists in the political sphere, especially these days, it's used as a... Um, a negative term, a pejorative term, too, to people that are too woke or woke police. And so you, you hear it from both sides. So being woke essentially, again, is this statement of being aware of injustices that exist and being mindful of them or aware of them. And so, of course, like I said, it can go too far. Um, and I think it definitely has. But I also wanted to focus on a different aspect of this which is actually when you hear it sometimes it was it's it's declared as stay woke which i think that i prefer meaning that if we say stay woke that means you have to keep um becoming more and more aware of what's going on in the world what i don't like is when people declare themselves as woke as a type of descriptor meaning they're done or they've you know they're they're just fully awakened. So I sometimes think rather than saying woke, it's better to say I'm awakening, meaning I'm continuing to do that. But I think stay woke also achieves that same mindset. And it reminds me of also the same thing that happens when people use the word ally. Because to me, uh, and I in the book um, Demystifying Disability, I think this was expressed very well, uh, ally is not a noun, it's more of a verb, it's an action. So if you're an ally for other people or for anyone. It's not just a declaration that this is who I am. It's shown through behaviors and actions and continued behaviors and actions. So it's not like you're being knighted uh, and you've officially have that title now. You have to continue being that if you're saying you are that. Because if you are a genuine ally, that means you care about a certain individual or a certain group and you will continue to show up for that group. 
And so being woke, I think, has that same dynamic where to me, like I said, I like stay woke or awakening because that's a verb rather than just saying you are woke to declare yourself um, as someone who is, you know, with it and helpful to people and aware of things and up to speed with everything that's going on. Because when we look at that, when you try to declare yourself as woke, what you're essentially saying is I'm a good person. And so this is why people can get, I think rightfully so, uh, annoyed or upset with people talking about being woke because it becomes pretty clear that it's more about showing themselves a certain way, what can also be called virtue signaling, and presenting themselves as someone who cares, who, who's understanding, who's an ally, and all these good things that come with it. And so I think when you're trying to declare yourself as woke, it's actually more about what you want to get from that label rather than being inspired by the intention to do good that comes with that. And so this is where we always have to be mindful. Of course, it's very quick and easy to judge other people, and we tend to do that. But we have to ask ourselves what we are doing and what our intentions always are. So when we talk about being woke, what's driving that? Are you recognizing there's injustices in this world and you want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem? You want to be sympathetic and empathetic to people who are suffering and also try to create positive change? Or is it more that you want people to think you are those things, that I am not part of the problem, look how good I am, or people to appreciate who you are in a certain way and to see you in a certain way. And so I would hope that we recognize this within ourselves and try to focus on taking the actions rather than the focusing on the label, that I am just someone who is a helpful person, but rather trying to help. Now, we know that as human beings, we're going to always enjoy being seen in a positive way. So it's not that, you know, there's sometimes people say, well, there's no such thing as a selfless action. You know, we're trying to get something out of it. Or even if there's nothing tangibly that we can see, well, the person feels good doing it. So it's still in that way, selfish. And yes, I think at some level, there can be some philosophical argument made in that way. But if that's the case, then the person killing people and saving people are the same, essentially. Everyone is serving their own interests. Or if someone is selling drugs to kids and someone is preventing drugs being sold to kids, they're doing the same thing because they're trying to get something out of it. So I don't think that would make sense in a moral framework or ethical framework to essentially say that all things are the same because nothing can be selfless and everything is serving us in some way. I think we would recognize is that when we do something for others and it feels good, that can be different than if we are trying to do something to take from others. Or in this case, if we're doing something so that we get some type of status because of it. So there can be a difference between me doing something good and it feels good. I see someone is suffering and I go help them and I feel good about that. It seems like they're feeling better. I feel good about that. And that's different from, I'm going to go do something good and I want to make sure I put it on social media so people see that I did this good thing and then they're going to tell me about how good I am. So in both cases, I might feel good about how I feel about what I did and even getting, maybe if someone saw it and I didn't intend for someone to see it, I probably would still like that. But the intention can be different and how much is driving our intention. Am I trying to help? Or am I trying to help myself in how I'm being seen? And 
again, it could be a little bit of both, but each one of us has to ask ourselves, what's driving my behavior? Now, I have a small caveat about posting something online. Um, I had a quote today that I wrote about Valentine's Day and how, uh, you know, no good relationship or a relationship goal could be captured in a video or a picture that a, a good relationship feels good to the people in it, not looks good to people from the outside. And so similarly, you know, what people post online, we always have to wonder about their intentions. And I always ask you all to ask themselves what their intention is. But when it comes to doing good, why I have a mixed feeling is that in some ways, when we post certain things, it can make, make behaviors more normalized. So if people were posting videos of like doing charity work, doing volunteer work, yes, there could be a way of flexing in a certain way and trying to show themselves in a certain way, but it also could make it more normal and expected that people do those things. Um, in Peter Singer's book about uh, the life you can save, he talks about that, that he actually was promoting that if you're going to do a type of donation where you are going to every year donate a certain percentage of your charity, uh, your your salary to charity, to actually post that somewhere because it'll encourage others to do it as well. Uh, giving, like all our feelings and actions, is contagious. So there is something to that. So sometimes I have a mixed feeling. You see sometimes people will post something online of themselves, you know, uh, giving food to someone who is on the street and like, you know, it's so... Uh, sensationalized and there's all this emphasis and like, look at what I'm doing. I just, sometimes it really rubs me the wrong way. While at the same time, as I was saying, I think it's good to promote doing good for others so that it becomes more and more a human norm. And we get influenced by what we see. People also post videos of doing mean things and pranks to other people. And that unfortunately normalizes and makes those behaviors more likely as well. So that's where I can have a bit of a gray area feeling about that, of which way is the right way. I think it's definitely more of a case-by-case -case thing, but it's something to, to think about in ourselves. But anyway, we want to think about when we are doing something good, well, hopefully that's what we're doing, something that helps others, what's driving my behavior? What is the intention? And how can I try to make more and more my focus doing the right thing rather than how I'm going to be seen in all of this? It's kind of like, well, I want to help this person, but there's no cameras around. So maybe I won't help this person until the cameras show up. And this is something that uh, politicians get in trouble for all the time because, of course, we know what they're doing is all political stunts and shows, and they want to make sure it's on camera and video and all that to show what a great person they are. I forgot who it was, so I don't want to say, but I know there was some politician went to some kind of like soup kitchen or homeless shelter and the dishes were already washed, but they took them those clean dishes and started washing them again. So they looked like, you know, they're rolling up their sleeves and, and genuinely helping out. So um, they're very, very clearly, we can see that the person is not trying to genuinely help to help others. They want to look good to others. And it's the benefit they're going to get because the dishes were already washed. Washing them again is not helpful. It's just you want to make sure there's a picture or video of you um, doing that action. So I always encourage people to obviously do good things and for myself too, to try to do good things that help others, but to then try to focus on what is my intention. And so coming back to this concept of being woke, I think it's something that, especially in the younger generation, it's a, a declaration 
of who I am. Oh, I'm woke or I'm more woke than you. And it's a competition. And so if you find yourself competing on being more woke than someone else, uh, you can be pretty sure that's more about what you're getting out of it than trying to do good things. I think as in all aspects of life, there can be importance to have an intellectual or in this case, I don't know if it's a character type of humility to recognize that I'm woke or I try to stay, I try to stay woke or be more woke, but um, I know there's so much more for me to learn. You know, you sometimes see this, like people, someone will bring something up and someone says, oh, well, you know, you're talking about this issue, but did you know this issue is more important? There's so-and-so people that are getting treated this way here. And so there's this competition of who has the most important issue to talk about. And, and in Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks, he talked about a lot of things of how our time is finite and you won't be able to do everything. But there's also this part where he mentioned how there's no way for you to, especially to take action for every type of group or every uh, type of person or situation that might involve your uh, charity or would benefit from your charity or your time. There's just no way to, to help and there's no way to even know about all of them. So even if you think you are so woke... You have to, I would hope, accept that there's so much suffering that happens in the world that you have no idea about, that you haven't even thought about, or has not been brought to your attention. So again, if you're stating in this way of putting yourself above others, it is actually kind of a funny thing to think about when you think about most things that wokeness is about is one group being subjugated by another, sexism, racism, things like that. So some group is putting themselves above others and you're upset about that and want to help them. But in this case, people show off about being woke in a way where they try to put themselves above other people. I'm more woke than you. And so in that way, I'm superior to you. I'm better than you. I had never thought about that, but I think that is quite funny that that's what's going on. So I think this is why it rubs people the wrong way. And I think that understandably does when you recognize that the person is expressing their concern for others, not genuinely out of a concern for others, but out of making sure you're concerned with them and how great they are and how good they are. And so we have to be mindful that it's very easy to fall into that trap of wanting to be seen a certain way. As human beings, we do care how we are seen. I know it's very easy to say don't care, but we all care. It's part of being human. And so we always have to check in with ourselves to recognize what's driving my behavior. Even as I was having this segment, I was like, well, am I also doing it here? Or when I talk about topics on this show, I have to be mindful of what I'm, I'm doing and how I'm choosing those things and trying to keep myself in check and try to be mindful of that. But so I do think it's humorous to think of us as competing with one another to say we're so woke when the things we tend to be woke about are about one group oppressing, subjugating another and thinking they're better than them. So I'm better than you because I know about these situations where a group thinks they're better than other people, which is bad, uh, but somehow it's good when I'm, I'm doing that. So I, I can understand the criticism when people um, look at someone who's trying to declare their wokeness and a type of virtue signaling that is, I think, very harmful and not coming from a good place. And unfortunately, what happens is that when people do something but good, but in an extreme or bad way, it then can make people throw the baby out with the bathwater and think it's all bad. So all wokeness is bad because some people do it as virtue signaling. Some people do it not because they genuinely care, but so they look a certain way. And so anyone who's being woke or pointing out injustices, it's all bad now. And that's definitely not true. Injustices absolutely exist and we do need to do something about it. And it is important to stay woke but it's important to recognize that it is a verb, 
not a noun. It involves action, not a label. So to me, this is actually, when we talk about identity politics, I think uh, without looking at certain groups of people, we can't understand what's going on. So there does have to be some identity politics. That's the only way that makes sense. I also, I think the bigger problem is identifying with your politics and how strongly at times we identify, for example, as I'm a Democrat or Republican, which means I have to believe everything of my team and hate everything of the other team, or I believe in this policy, taxation has to be this way or that way and only can be this way, and we identify so strongly, then we're going to be much less open to seeing new information because not only is it a threat to our ideas, it's a threat to my identity, a threat to who I am. It can essentially feel like death. You're killing me if you prove what I'm saying is not right. So of course, I'm not going to be open to that. I'm not going to be open to you taking my identity, taking my essentially life in that way. So um, that I think can be a problem when people try to identify themselves even as woke, that can be uh, an issue and something that we all have to recognize that even if you were, let's say, if you knew everything that was going on in the world, which I don't think is possible, but every injustice in the world, you somehow were able to study everything and know and the details of it. Well, the world is constantly changing. So even if you know it at a given moment in time, the situation is, is constantly going to change. So let's not declare our wokeness. Let's keep staying woke, keep awakening and display our wokeness through action. So don't declare it, display it through action, just like we should not declare ourselves allies. We can tr show up as allies and show it through actions. It's not a noun. It is also a verb. So that was something I was thinking as I, I read the book of the week for this week, um, how the word is passed by Clint Smith, because as I read it, I have studied slavery in a variety of ways, read several books related to race, racism, and slavery um, just in the la last few years. But there were definitely perspectives in this book that I had never even considered when it came to slavery and racism in America. So I recognize that I'm continuing to awaken and become woke and try to stay woke, but there's so much I don't know and have to learn. And I hope we can all maintain that posture and that stance and not try to one-up one another to prove our wokeness and just focus on becoming more awakened and staying woke ourselves. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful day.